Let's use this last evening of the retreat uh, to see if there are any loose ends, <clears throat> many requests for questions with questions and can't possibly all be answered with so little time. Uh, so we'll use this period for a, a Q&A time. Uh, it's still practice. It's practice in, in listening. It's practice in speaking when you do, for me as well. Uh, and listening to what the questions are. Sometimes people tune out, underestimate the value of the questions that come from fellow yogis and overestimate the value of the teacher's contribution. We all have the same mind and some of their questions, perhaps all of them, are about all of us. Okay, who would like to... And it can be about uh, the practice we've been doing here, contemplative sitting and so forth, and also uh, daily life, bringing the practice home. Who would like to start off? Please. You're going to have to... There's nothing to say. No, I mean, a 12-day retreat, a 14-day retreat, what you're calling tradition, who said, yeah. No, I understand. Good. Uh, this is a seven-day retreat. <laughs> I have no deep philosophy. <laughs> Honestly, no, I'm not holding anything back. It had to do with, with arranging schedules and time and coming over from Italy and all kinds. Yeah. No, there's nothing deeper than that. Please. Yes. No, it was it was it, it <clears throat> existed at the time of the Buddha, and uh, it has then made its way down through. Uh, certainly, in Theravadan Buddhism, it's a central practice that you'll find different ways of doing it in Zen. Uh, I don't know the Tibetan uh, practice as well. But uh, if you read the early teachings, very clear, walking meditation is, what is extolled is all four postures, sitting, standing, lying down, and walking. Um, and you'll find uh, practices that come just a little bit after the Buddha's death. Uh, I mentioned in one of our groups this practice where, let's say, uh, the yogi is, is walking into town. Uh, 
the practice was you be mindful as you make your way into town and then suddenly you realize, oh, just past that elm tree, I lost it. You have to go back to the elm tree and then you start again. And as I mentioned in one of the groups, uh, I was foolish enough to take that practice up uh, uh, for a while. It takes me approximately where I live to get into Harvard Square in Cambridge, Massachusetts, 20 minutes at most, 25 minutes. So I took this practice. Uh, hours later, I was, you know, <laughs> you know, oh, it was at that gas station. Oh, okay. Go back to the gas station. It's a little bit like Monopoly. You know, go directly to jail. To, or, uh, but it was quite valuable. And so, no, no, it's, it's a, a, a venerable ancient tradition. Uh, some of it is because people sit a lot. They have to do. They have to walk. They have to use their bodies as well. Yeah. Please. So, so following on that, at the home practice, I, I always I just sit. I don't walk or stand or lie down. Um, yes, you do. Yeah. 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 It's what has been suggested from the beginning that um, if you formal practice is what you're talking about, formal meditation practice. And it, that is uh, a vital, and as you know, from just spending as many days as you're here, and some of you have done longer retreats and so forth, you know that it has a, a very, it's very precious, and sitting each day can be very, very helpful. But much of the day, most of the day, even in a monastery, is not spent sitting. Sometimes, so uh, when the Buddha is saying sitting, standing, lying down, walking, it's shorthand for everything, because uh, that's our life is spent moving through the different postures. Uh, the challenge is when you go home. Now, if you mean as a formal posture, as a formal practice, uh, it's really up to you. Some people do walking meditation at home. Uh, sometimes they'll do a, a few minutes of walking meditation prior to sitting. Uh, let's say it's a day when you're feeling not too, uh, you're feeling rather restless. And sometimes it can be useful before you sit to do some very slow walking. Uh, some people do more rapid walking, perhaps outside, and then come back in and do some sitting. Um, I think, you know, you'll, you'll have to tailor it, but uh, practice is to me synonymous with living. Formal practice is one aspect of practice. It is not the practice. Does everyone, in other words, as important, in other words, let's take sitting, for example. It's very special. Then again, it isn't. But then again, it is. But it isn't. Uh, in this sense, if you fixate on sitting practice, and create a schism, a split, between sitting and everything else, which I think does happen, no matter how much we extol daily life. I think, yeah, we know, but the real thing is 
you know, it's what he, the bo a boss does. You sit, <laughs> you know, you sit. Um, uh, if, if that preciousness becomes such that, in a deep psychological sense, conviction is lacking in pretty much everything else, even though most of our life is everything else, uh, to me it just seems obvious that our practice is going to be uh, rather tepid. It's not going to, how can it have much depth? Uh, and I also think uh, it, it is a, a way of living. At first, of course, it doesn't feel that way because it's very, uh, uh, the uh, tremendous investment or interest is in techniques. Especially, we're very technique oriented. And techniques are, are quite helpful. You've been doing some and you know they are. Um, but finally, uh, to me, real practice is wherever you are, uh, to whole, wholeheartedly enter into that. So that doing the dishes can you disappear into the dishes. That means it's not a, a trivial practice. What, me, what, what I'm saying is that uh, you're wholeheartedly 100% washing the dishes mind. And then when that's over, exhale it, over with, and then whatever's next. Uh, and throughout the day, taking it one situation at a time. Exhale. That's a metaphor sometimes used. Exhale just as the, as the body does that. It exhales what it doesn't need anymore, what's over. So it makes room for fresh uh, oxygen. Uh, and it's not a bad metaphor for how to guide us through the day, to take each thing as it arrives, arises for us in our life, let go of what has preceded it, and enter fully into that, and then in turn let go of that, and so forth. Um, standing practice as a form, formal standing. Uh, a few of you used it here. Uh, it's, uh, I've been at uh, monasteries in Asia where it's really quite a substantial part of the practice. You'll see yogis standing for extensive periods of time. Lying down, um, that one is dangerous because we have a lot of, a lot of practice and it goes somewhere else called sleep. But with, with, with training and practice, you can make that invaluable too. Uh, and some people have to because of bodily injury and so forth. Um, but, you know, you have just so much time, to most of us, all of us probably, when you're home. And you have to devise some kind of priorities as to what's most important because you have the possibility of sitting meditation, walking meditation, yoga, tai chi or something. Uh, if you have a job and or a family or you're a student or whatever it is that's taking up your day, um, you, some set of priorities is going to have to uh, emerge for you. And that's very much an individual matter uh, having to do with many factors. You know. Please. Yes. It's bad. <laughs> I, I peeked at the New York Times and the staff. Uh, I wasn't looking for what we Yeah, no. Um, could you help me understand uh, the question that is, is it a, do you, are you a CNN junkie or something like that? Uh, 
Yes, I understand. You know, It's the very same thing. Uh, yeah, no, I will. Um, right after 9-11, uh, many, many of us were fixated on TV. And we watched CNN or whatever, you know, uh, hours of going somewhere else, coming back to it, going somewhere, coming. And then people started to actually report problems from just uh, a, a kind of fatigue or exhaustion. Um, and so how could you practice w with it? Um, it? Let's say you're about to sit down and watch the news. Well, this is what we devised at that time. Uh, I think things have calmed down a little bit. Uh, OK, you're going to watch. First of all, don't watch it so much. People were watching the same things over and over and over, and then dwelling on it and going into depression. Accomplishing what? You know, depression not helping the situation at all, just adding one more casualty to what had happened. And that's an ongoing issue. Okay. Uh, so the, what we came up with is a way to relate to it, which isn't just during a crisis, but is let's say you sit down on the couch, you turn on CNN, you sit down on the couch, take it as a practice. Watch what, what is being shown and also watch your reactions. Uh, uh, you know, whatever they are, anxiety, anger, this, that, and the other. Uh, otherwise, what happens is we get lost in good, bad, right, wrong, I like, I hate, and it's very far away from meditation. Uh, so that uh, it's not, there, I can't say there's one meditative stance towards, some people are very interested in the world, I am, I read the paper every day, and I watch CNN and so forth, um, sometimes what I see is very saddening. It's not that I don't, uh, that the sadness, uh, I'm, my equanimity is such that I see some of the things that I see and I'm just like this. Not at all. There's a, a sadness that comes. In fact, I think what may be helpful, I hope so, is that if you keep meditating, doing this practice, what happens is, of course, you become more sensitive. Uh, I'm sure you've experienced that already. Sensitive in, in a way that we approve of, discerning, like we see all kinds of subtleties in ourselves and in life. Uh, a question to an ancient teacher, what is enlightenment? The grass is green, the sky is blue. Okay, uh, that sounds commonplace. But what it means is you're really seeing it from the depth that you didn't see it before. We like that kind of sensitivity, hearing sounds. And, but then what comes with it, you can't get one with it, with the other, without the other, a sensitivity of uh, feeling pain, uh, of feeling the pain of the world and of, uh, and of yourself. Now, if you don't work with that skillfully, what tends to happen is you do add another casualty and feed it all day long, talking to other people who feel the way you do, or arguing with people who don't feel the way you do. Uh, there are people at our center who got furious that uh, people were allowed to be members of CIMC who were for the war. And I have my own political opinions, which I just as soon not get into now. Uh, but I felt that CI Cambridge Insight Meditation Center uh, 
what was important, one thing vital about it is that it should be a place where everyone felt safe, that they could come in and find a place, an oasis in a sense, from all of this and other problems, and be able to sit quietly and then go back out into the world. And if we say, oh, you're for the war, out. Uh, what kind of a meditation center would that be? You know, it's just... Uh, so there are a lot of issues. Uh, you really, it's really quite a big question, and it's a, it's a good question. Uh, when you get home, read about the five balas, B-A-L-A-S, of the Buddha, the five powers. Uh, I don't want to go, it, you know, it would be a whole... But essentially, what's important to do is to develop inner strength. Uh, at a time when there's a lot of uncertainty and difficulty and people are losing jobs, people are dying, decisions are made that we may find horrendous, um, and we have strong reactions, uh, some of which completely overtake us, and meditation is out the window. It has nothing to do with it. Now, it's not saying to be apolitical or, or political. From my point of view, that's your business. Uh, but what awareness does, it helps you see more clearly. And um, the world is an unstable place. It's always been an unstable place. And right now we're quite sensitive to how unstable it is. Uh, and is there any place that, any stability that we can find anywhere? And there is. But uh, in other words, uh, there's a lot of, <clears throat> if we're, there's bad news, a lot of the news is bad news, then we can all get some good news. We turn on, but the meditation is going to that place where there's no news. There's no CNN, that's why it's, we want to go there. But there's no Fox either. You know, that's, if you don't, if you're not a political junkie, you know, they have a somewhat different take on things. Um, there's a place, that's the whole point of it, is there's a place that is uh, unconditioned and that uh, more and more uh, what the practice is doing is helping us tap that, live there, and live from it. But let's get to the sensitivity. If you keep practicing, you will become more sensitive. Sensitive discerning, sensitive vulnerable. Okay? The same mindfulness that brought that brought both of them into, that made them, uh, that nourished them, made them stronger. When there's, uh, you feel you're very, very, the sensitivity is you're, you're feeling a tremendous amount of sorrow. The same mindfulness that, in a sense, helped that come up, when brought to that sorrow, uh, makes it something that isn't just drowning in it. And so little by little, you don't become a robot. Uh, you can you become a feeling person, but there's no virtue in drowning in this because then you're adding another casualty in addition to whatever you're seeing or reading about that uh, brings on the sorrow. Yeah. Please. Uh, taking into account that, uh, that aging, sickness, and death uh, is uh, natural to all living things, all beings. 
including there's your father, everyone in this room. Uh, and I guess you could call it a Buddhist perspective. To me, it's a sane perspective. Uh, because what it, 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 if you practice in certain monasteries, there are very young monks or even uh, young teenagers or a little older than that who are being introduced to a natural truth that uh, one ages, one grows ill, one dies. Rather than seeing it as uh, hiding from it, playing all kinds of games around it, and then when it hits, being totally ill-prepared to know what to do with it. Uh, so that there's a whole uh, substantial part of the Buddhist teaching called Maranasati, death awareness. And people start with that. It has nothing to do with what it, if anyone, uh, an immediate loss. Well, uh, it's, it's a contemplation, but also life itself is teaching us lessons all day long. People, you can see it in yourself and, uh, of course, in others. People, uh, anything can teach you to. You see a movie star who you liked and is dead. Or you see them when they were a young actor or actress and you see what they looked then and then you see them playing a very different role now. And if you want to, if you're, if you're motivated to learn from what is going on, uh, then that's, to, that's a gift to you because you're starting to little by little get in touch with a natural law. It's not weird. Everyone, can you imagine how many people have already gotten old, sick, and died, you know, over the years? Uh, and then we treat it, and it's understandable, it's poignant, as if it's the first time it's ever happened to anyone, and as if it's, uh, we got singled out. Uh, it's part of, part of, life and death walk hand in hand. There's no way of separating them. But many cultures do that. It's artificial. It doesn't work. Okay. So, uh, but let's say you've entered into this at whatever stage your practice is, and when there's sorrow or feeling of loss, that's what you practice with. Uh, to me, that's most helpful. Uh, I found no better teaching than life itself. Uh, the lessons are everywhere, and they never stop. Uh, the curriculum is all set. No one's signing up. Do you want to sign up? I can't say that, that the tuition's free. It just costs everything. It's, uh, it asks a lot. Uh, but, but let's say right now you don't need a cultivated practice because you've had an actual loss. And I, I know from our chat that your father was close to you. You loved him. You love him. Um, the practice would be to be with whatever that is, whatever it is that uh, you're, it's training and honesty really. I think the whole practice is that. Uh, it's not to, sometimes we feel we should be uh, grieving more than we are. Uh, in, uh, in the old Jewish tradition, I don't know if it still goes on, people actually paid my grandfather to make a few extra bucks. We'd go to the to, to, to deaths and people would pay him and then he would just you know, grieve, you know, why, oh, you know, uh, it, it would kind of, I, I'm not joking. Okay, uh, I gather you don't need that. I mean, you already, you already have it. So it's everything you learned this week, just apply it now, it's very close to home. And it's not just in-breath, out-breath, in-breath, out-breath, it's sorrow. Uh, how to grieve is another, another matter. Uh, 
because we have a lot of uh, is approach and pull back and come to it and resist it. Um, be honest with what with what that has left you. Your father's passing. What has that left you? Did any of it come up on the retreat? Great. It's it's not to force yourself to feel grief uh, in a, some kind of dramatic way. Uh, some people feel that unless they suffer in some dramatic way, even though there's no one around, uh, that they didn't really love their the departed person. Uh, not necessarily. Everyone grieves in a very, very different way. Uh, I've questioned my own teachers, and the range is quite extraordinary. Uh, so just be true to yourself. Uh, I would say, suggest this. Uh, when my own father died, and I was very close to him as well, um, I thought I had grieved. You know, I'm a meditator, a meditator, big teacher and all that stuff. Uh, so I thought I did my grieving. And he wanted, uh, he wanted his ashes uh, to be cast in the Pacific Ocean. Some of his happiest times were along the ocean of Coney Island, Brooklyn. Uh, and so I took, it, I, I took it as a practice for a month. I kept them on a little altar I have where I practice at home. And I would reflect uh, from time to time, like at the end of a sitting, that what's in that little box, the r remains of my father, uh, that's what's there. Uh, and that was his last gift to me. In other words, I'm not exempt from that. Uh, the reason the Buddha emphasized this, let's say if you're young or at any age, is not to uh, increase morbidity in the world or so we all become depressives, uh, but rather to uh, wake us up that we don't have forever and to get our priorities in order. Uh, it's a tremendous help if you allow it to teach you because then uh, if you love someone, you, everyone is much more precious as you start seeing life in a very, very different way. If you're willing to learn from that, that it, that it is about you. And so I, I did it. I even had a lot, I had training in it, uh, a few months of it, hard training on, on death awareness practice. And I thought I was doing quite a good job. When, I, when the 40 days were over, the month was over, and I uh, went to the Atlantic Ocean uh, near Newburyport, Massachusetts, and a friend's cottage, I was going to do a sitting right after it, which was a good idea. I didn't know how good. Because I thought I was kind of done. I put the ashes in the ocean, I went back to this cottage, and then I found out the difference between what I had been doing and pure grief. There was no separation, it was just pure grief. There was no little Larry who's lost his daddy. There was no thinking. There was no separation. Uh, and there was, of course, crying. There was, it was a, a pure, uninhibited, 100% intimate, words like that, experience. And then after it was over, I felt like I had crossed over into something, uh, out of something, and that I had really, more than I realized I needed, uh, come closer to accepting his death. So there are stages, but don't, just don't fake it, you know. Uh, and devoting some time to sit, you may find it comes up. If it doesn't, fine. And if you're feeling the love, by all means, you know, then 
allow that love uh, to be there and to work with it. Let it operate on you. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. What was the other? It was, oh, yeah, that's really, I, I wouldn't know what to say. Uh, everyone had, Yeah. You know, I, I, I plead uh, guilty. I'm a, I'm a bad Buddhist. Uh, I don't know I don't know the holidays. I don't know a lot of the practices. Um, I've tried. It doesn't stick. Um, in fact, after 9/11, I was called up by Tricycle magazine and. A number of people were asked, the question was, as a Buddhist, uh, how do you see what happened? And I said, can I just answer as a person who's, <laughs> who's uh, learned from the Buddhist teaching and practice uh, an enormous, so it would have been, of course, a factor. They didn't want that. They wanted me to speak as a Buddhist, and I didn't feel comfortable doing that. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how I kind of uh, improvised. I honored my father's wishes. Uh, he didn't say keep the ashes for a month. I, that was my own choice. But I put it in the Pacific. My mother also, uh, her ashes, she wanted to be buried where I lived. So it's under a Buddha in a garden, in a backyard. Uh, so uh, I don't know. I don't want to say make it up. Someone, find someone who, there are. There are for example, we do a chant in the evening, Anicca Vata Sankara. That's often chanted at death. Everything that arises passes away. No, no, metta is always a good uh, thing to do, yeah. yeah. Please. Yes. Uh, Tomorrow, tomorrow there'll be ample time. Are you implying that this retreat was a bit of a geriatric ward? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, tomorrow, we will have time tomorrow. Yeah, no, t tomorrow... There was a question somewhere around. Yes, please. Yeah. Okay, I, I'll repeat it. Um, let's say a teacher gives some guided meditation, and uh, as we do here, Corrado, myself, you know, I think every teacher does some of that during a retreat. And right after that or during it, your mindfulness is much sharper. It's much easier. But then, are you implying that then it isn't? Okay. The issue is dependence. Yes. 
Okay, as I try to, a few of you, I don't remember, you know, we've been so many groups and so many, doesn't matter if I've repeated it, uh, have you done it yet, that one, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Buddhist teaching is uh, very subtle. If, if you read a lot of the suttas and uh, try to understand what's going on, the teachings for all kinds, it's a huge department store. It's for all kinds of people. But also, uh, sometimes people will, very, very new to the practice, uh, follow the breathing and, and uh, let's say, within a few weeks or very soon, they feel great. And they say, oh, this is wonderful. Oh, but I guess I'm getting attached. I shouldn't be attached, right? And what I always say is, be attached, great. You know, uh, you may, it's not, I'm not saying anything iconoclastic. What the Buddha uh, did was he allowed certain coarse kinds, of course you're not being derogatory, of, de- of uh, dependencies, of attachments, to, to get us off the ground. When we start, of course there's loads of ego. Of course there's dependency. Uh, it's sort of um, the attachment, it's, a, it's a, a favorable attachment because it's helping to get the energy going to get the practice launched. And then uh, as the teaching unfolds for each one of us, uh, what was coarse, it either falls away by itself, like you won't need us, you know, uh, saying whatever it is, because from inside you have all the uh, energy you need. Uh, But also at that time, the Buddha would not try to take away attachments prematurely. So coarse attachments at a certain point, one way or another, they're like a love or, or taken away, and they're somewhat more subtle, more refined attachments are allowed. And it keeps going to, going that way until finally uh, all views and opinions, including Buddhist ones, uh, attachment to that. Uh, so that's quite an unusual teaching, I would say, in that even this teaching can become, depending on wh- how you use it, medicine or poison. So I wouldn't be hard on you, you're needing it and, uh, just yet, but you, you see what I'm getting at. It's not such a simple answer, uh, but I'm glad you know it, you see it. You see that, that uh, you have that. But I think that's fairly common. You know, uh, when you go to a retreat, even if the teachers are gentle, we're putting pressure on you. The schedule, our uh, constant saying things, reminding you, that's putting a certain pressure on you. It's subtle, it's gentle, but it's getting to you to put out perhaps a little more than you would normally on your own, as well as, of course, even more important perhaps, is all of us doing it together. So that's part of the power of a retreat, is that we're all, in in that sense, we're cultivating a kind of dependence Eventually, if you could only meditate in a group, that's rather limited. There are some people who can only meditate alone. That's also rather limited. It seems that life is both alone and together. But I, I wouldn't worry about it as a problem. No. Please. That's my phrase. 
I, uh, what? What Vipassana means is clear seeing. Uh, one of the most important things to understand is that so many different things help us along the path. Uh, you know, obvious. But the cutting edge of Vipassana is the clear seeing. Okay, now, uh, what we call clear seeing uh, changes as your practice matures and ripens and flowers. And then it gets even more subtle and more refined and more refined. Uh, one of the beauties of practice for me is that so many things that I've done, the more you do it, eventually you wear them out. This one seems to just go on forever. It gets better. Uh, it's like you, the subtlety keeps coming. And uh, so really, it's... it's it's not in any Buddhist text. It came to me in a sitting many, many years ago. So I just, it's helped me, and I hope it's of some use uh, to, to all of you. So really is as clear as is possible now. It's like if you're starting to, like if I take these glasses off, I can see a blur, a blur over there. And maybe I don't know there's such a thing as glasses. And then I come to a Vipassana center and I say, hey, put these on. And I put them on and I go, wow. And then maybe I go to a master optometrist. You know, and he says, this was a little off. You know, you could be, and then, so it's something like that. What sets us free is the clear seeing, learning. Eventually, that's who we are. It's not that we use it. Uh, we are awareness, but that's something that has to become becomes evident with practice. Yeah. Good. The world of talk, yes. I think you have a lot of company. We're, we're all, um, what you're talking is about from here to there. Yes. Yes. Um, what kind of freedom would it be if we could only be in certain settings, restricted settings, and be happy in those settings? Let's say, Look, the silence is very, very healing and invaluable. I don't have to convince you of that, do I? Yeah, okay. Uh, but also, some of it is we're temporarily protected from relationship. You see what I'm getting at? Uh, uh, we don't have to listen to the, some of the guff we have to listen to and put out our own and uh, you know, be, be mischievous to others and they're mischievous to us. And uh, what a relief. Uh, the silence, uh, we're still aware of each other. The relationship is alive and well, even on a silent retreat. We're having reactions. And then tomorrow, the world comes back. Well, um, 
It's something like this. This is a very common one. If you, let's say, if you have this kind of silence and you're driving to Boston, this has been reported to me many times, um, and you, oh, wonderful, I had a wonderful retreat and so forth. As uh, you start to drive and the mileage starts ticking off, uh, your hard-earned samadhi starts getting weaker and weaker. And, and then a big truck comes by, and then a policeman, you know, kind of zips past, and before you know it, you're at a rest stop, and children are running all over the place, and I wasted my whole, the, the entire seven days. I was like, I've never been here. Okay. That's one way to approach it. Uh, but there are a couple of ways that, uh, so that it becomes part of our practice, because it may be jarring for you when you get back. But uh, one of the things, it's, here are a couple of, just a couple, you may learn other things on your own, I hope so, fresh, freshly. Uh, one is that the silence you have is held together by conditions. With a meditation center is, is, has created the optimum conditions to try to really help us human beings go from outer silence to inner silence. Apparently, it's been pretty helpful for you. Great. Okay. But, so that wisdom is understanding that is not the ultimate silence. There is a piece that comes from insight, from wisdom, where you can be at home in the world. If you only have peace from, let's say, a concentrated mind in a certain setting, that means, in a sense, you are imprisoned by those conditions. And we keep scurrying back to those conditions. Now, that's very, very useful to make, to uh, intensify the depth of our practice. Uh, but unless you're going to live out your life that way, most of us have to learn how to live in this world as it is. Uh, it's, I don't, it's ob- obvious. And so one of the things, it's an element of wisdom that you don't get upset. You realize, oh, the conditions have changed, and of course my, my samadhi is now uh, a, a little bit weaker. But let's say practically, without doing that kind of a reflection, um, whatever, as, as speech starts happening right here, I think that's what you said, okay, and you start feeling a reaction to that, that's your practice. Feel what it does to you. Uh, little by little, over the years, um, I think you can learn how to, uh, for example, we, there's a talk about integrating what we're doing here to where we're going. I've never liked that phrase. Because that implies it makes this too separate and that too separate. Whereas to me, there's just life. A retreat is a slice of life. People living out their life with these rules, agreed upon rules, which maximize certain things happening, help it happen. Okay. It isn't life itself. And you know, if we fixate on it, just if we fixate on a, on a posture or on anything, that's a teaching, it's going to bring suffering. Okay. So it's not so much, in, there's, there's just life. So we go from this slice of life which puts a premium on sitting quietly and sitting for long periods of time. Wonderful. And now that's over. Exhale it. That's, that's, 
And what's the next situation? I don't know what yours is. Well, even here, as you point out, it changes tomorrow. But that will be relatively easy, I think. And then you get home and there's friends and family and work and so forth. Um, that isn't interfering with your practice. That is your practice. Uh, and you may see how your mind has developed a rigid schism, a kind of non-hospitalizable schizophrenia. You know, where you can only be happy on retreats in the country. Chirp, chirp. And then as soon as you hit the rest of, of life, uh, you can't wait to get back. One of the reasons we started the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center is I saw a phenomenon in the early days of IMS. The three-month retreat was great, and then people would leave here, and then there would be nine months before you'd come back to the next three-month retreat. People would wear the retreat like combat ribbons. You know, uh, three-month retreat, 1997. Uh, and then the, 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 the burning question was how to earn enough money to get back to the next three-month retreat. And the talk was, a lot was about the retreat that is already over. In the meantime, nine months of your life is not being attended to very well. Whereas I think we as lay people, we need a practice that has uh, vigor and vitality. Otherwise, if we're not careful, it means it has to use the stuff that actually makes up our actual life. Otherwise, we become second-class monks or nuns, and we're not even good lay people. Because while we're doing, oh, yeah, I got to do this, I, get them, I can't wait to get home and sit, I can't wait to get to IMS. Um, it sort of it can make you a bigger misfit than before you ever heard of meditation. So take it on. Don't assume it's going to be terrible tomorrow, but take it on. Whatever it brings up, that's your practice. It's not a... Right. Okay. That's what, first noble truth, there is suffering. Second noble truth, it's due to craving and attachment. Get it? Relationship. Over time, why don't we focus on now? Let's not get too far ahead of. But okay, I see. I, I think I understand your question. If I don't interrupt me, um, there are many styles of practice since ancient times. One way was to devote a lot of time and attention to become absorbed. They call the absorptions jhanas where you don't really start doing very much of Vipassana uh, until there's a, a very strong foundation in deep samadhi concentration. 
another one, which is the one we're using, is that uh, Somali and Inside develop in tandem together. They work and they grow together. They reinforce each other. Uh, for most of us, there are exceptions. We need a minimum amount of, for this method, I'm going to talk about what I know best, what we were doing. You need a minimum amount of stability of mind before you start to look at, uh, open the mind up and just let it uh, express itself freely. Uh, whatever mood is there, whatever like or dislike, loneliness, fear, joy, love, whatever is there, that's the second mode. And is that clear so far, so good? Okay. Um, here may be the important distinction we were kind of getting at it in the question about silence. When it's the samadhi practice, which is if we spend even more time on just the breath, you know, that would become even more developed. And what you would taste would be a certain kind of peace. Uh, it's not mysterious. Probably millions, certainly many, many people have tasted it before us. And some of people just like us are tasting it right now. If you do it, you will get more concentrated. That will bring a certain kind of peace. Uh, sometimes that's called peace with delusion. Uh, it's vital. It's very, very important. But here's why it's called peace with delusion. It's because that peace, when you get absorbed in one object, it needn't be the breath. Okay? The peace is dependent on the temporary separating from all of the things that are intimidating in your consciousness. Fear, loneliness, anger, whatever, whatever yours is. And but as you get concentrated more and more and more, temporarily, you have a wonderful feeling of peace because everything else has gone into abeyance. Does that make sense? You come out of concentration, and the things that you that were intimidating, frightening, unwanted, it's not that they go away. But of course, now perhaps you're more fit to look at them, to to see the impermanent and empty nature of them and to let them go, which takes you to another dimension. The Vipassana part, that brings it, it's sometimes called peace with wisdom, because you take the mind that has some kind of concentration, some level of stability, so it's workable. Uh, if you're all over the place and someone says, oh, you know, just look at your fear, look at the you know, uh, at the grief that your father's death, it's sound. The words sound good, but you keep it, it, it practically you can't do it. it is, uh, the mind is uh, not fit to do it. Okay. Uh, the second mode of practice. This is called came. This is called the insight meditation society. Uh, is seeing into. Now the peace that comes from seeing into us, whatever arises in passively seeing that, over time exposing ourselves to fear, little by little, perhaps taking some of the power out of fear, out of loneliness, out of uh, certain kinds of attachments, etc. That brings a, a, a peace which 
enables you to be at home in your own mind. Because otherwise, the first time, you have peace. But as soon as you come out of it, uh, you're not going to be the wiser necessarily. A bit, because you love, we learn things in anything we do. The second one, which is premised, or let's just say helped a great deal by the stability of the first practice, uh, there, as you start learning how not to be frightened, how to let whatever is there appear, to receive it, to see it come and see it go, little by little you become more at home in your own consciousness. Now, that's in a sense an analogy to if you're only living here uh, and, and become afraid of going out, outside because of the conditions here are beneficial. Uh, I'm not saying don't live here. Live out your whole life here if you like it. But uh, typically people are, are do this. No, there are people who stay here a long time, and that's a perfectly good way to live. But what I'm saying is most of us don't, probably most of us in this room. Now, if you can go home and not be, uh, and live in this world as it is, with all its messiness, with its craziness, and stand on your own two feet, not be so pushed around, uh, that is wisdom, that's a, that's a peace with wisdom in it. Do you see the difference? I can't see you. Where, where are you? Yeah, I, I, I need to know if I got through. Good. Okay, it's uh, time for some walking.